independent media is more important than ever. We don't have a corporate network behind us, and we also don't have big green foundation grants. So we really do need you, and we are actively calling in your direct support so that we can continue exploring many of these topics and perspectives, often sidelined by mainstream media. If you're enjoying our show, please make sure you're subscribed and join us on Patreon today, starting at a tip of just $3 at patreon.com slash green dreamer. Every little bit helps and really adds up. And that is the power in community. So thank you so much for however you're able to support our work. Support for Green Dreamer comes from our listener patrons, people like you. If it's inspired you, if you're learning a lot from it, if it's become a part of your routine and you'd like to see this independent show continue into 2020, you can support Green Dreamer starting at just $2 per month by going to greendreamer.com support. And thank you so much if you're already a patron of Green Dreamer. A lot of different parts of our society are beginning to use their power for good. And yet, we still have lots of companies uh, who don't act in that way. Who not only don't have sustainability embedded within their own programs, but they, they're, they're putting money into uh, confusing people about climate change, supporting candidates who deny that climate change even exists, and they are actively, consciously, intentionally trying to stop progress from being made. And that's wrong. That was Michael Broom, the executive director of Sierra Club, which is one of the most enduring and influential grassroots environmental organizations in the United States. Stay tuned as we're about to explore why we cannot forget about exploring and enjoying nature as part of our environmental work, the role of mobilizing grassroots efforts to leverage the power of a collective in driving societal change, and more. Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. When I was growing up, there were really horrific water pollution problems in the region in which I grew up. The ocean water was polluted from a chemical waste facility in Toms River, New Jersey. And there was hospital waste that was dumped straight into the ocean from hospitals in the New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, tri-state area. And I saw how advocacy organizations and local citizens were able to work together and to push decision makers at the local and at the state level to enact much stronger laws and regulations and have much better business practices eventually. And I saw how that that made a really measurable and positive impact on my own life and the place in which I grew up. So that, that happened when I was a teenager. All of that work and the advocacy was going on as I was growing up. And after I graduated college, I wanted to make a difference in the world, and I ended up working for Greenpeace and then Rainforest Action Network. I became the executive director there and then came to the Sierra Club several years ago and feel very lucky to have the job that I do. 
Well, the Sierra Club has become really notable for its work leading people to explore, enjoy, and protect the planet. I think oftentimes in the environmental movement, especially today with our growing frustration and sense of urgency to drive change, we can easily forget about the importance of the first two, to explore and to enjoy nature. Why have these two things been central to your mission as an environmental advocacy group, and how do they support our progress and activism? Thanks for the question. You know, that exploring and enjoying our planet is at the core of what the Sierra Club does. And it actually was how the Sierra Club was created. It was in the late 18 or in the early 1890s when John Muir and a bunch of leaders at the time in San Francisco began leading these trips into Yosemite Valley and into the Sierra and the mountains of Northern California and then eventually way beyond simply to have a great time and to explore some pretty amazing places and to meet some amazing people. And the belief at the time was that there's an intrinsic value in getting out into nature. And there's a secondary value, which is that once you spend time in nature and as you learn about the threats to that place that you just fell in love with, you're pretty motivated to want to protect it. Mm. And so if you fast forward 120 something years, <clears throat> almost 130 years, even today, a big part of the Sierra Club is about getting people into the outdoors. We have programs with returning veterans who find some solace and some peace in their experiences in nature. We have a lot of programs getting kids into the outdoors. Many of them are spending their first night under the stars through the Sierra Club. And then just in general, all of our local chapters, all of our volunteers, or many of our volunteers across the country, their primary purpose is to build community and to have a good time with their neighbors and their friends and co-workers in the outdoors. And so I guess when you think about advocacy in general, a lot of advocacy is about identifying a problem in the world that needs to be fixed or a law that has to get passed and you can often lose the joy in your life and you can lose the opportunity to express wonder and amazement and gratitude for the beautiful planet that we're on and the wonderful people who are in our lives. And so for us, the most valuable part of the Sierra Club really is our connection to the outdoors, the programs that we have to get people into the outdoors and that we're not just focused on protecting, but simply enjoying the, the wonderful things that we've been given. Mm. I think it definitely, a lot of people burn out from activism. So yeah. remembering to take time to explore and enjoy nature, that can definitely keep us going. And we also are more likely to protect the things that we love. So when we're able to continue rekindling that relationship with nature, that can also support us in our work as well. Yeah, no doubt. Couldn't have said it better myself. So in an interview with Green Biz, you said something along the lines of how the current political climate and actions being taken are posing severe threats to our democracy. So to step away from politics is a bigger risk than engaging in it. Do you feel like environmental protection has always necessarily involved politics and has it become more political in any way? Well, yes to both. Of course, it's always involved politics because 
you're trying to pass laws or regulations to protect our air and our water, our forests, our parks, our climate. And to get laws passed, you have to deal with the, the political system in which we operate domestically or internationally. And yes, this issue has become more political, certainly more polarized over the last decade or so, last couple decades, let's say. And I would like to believe that this is a temporary condition, a temporary affliction that we have to deal with. I think everything is, is polarized and politicized these days. But maybe more than any other issue, I actually have a lot of hope that it could be through the protection of our air and our water and our parks and our forests, our climate, through those efforts, we might begin to dissolve a lot of the, the divisions and the anger that our society is plagued by. Mm. I think that a majority, a super majority of people, they want to have parks and wilderness areas that they can take their, uh, the people that they love out into. They want to be able to find some peace in the outdoors. They care about clean air. They don't want their water to be polluted. They care about climate change, and they're frightened about what would happen if we don't take strong action. Right. And that transcends race, it transcends class, it transcends political affiliation, religious beliefs, sexual orientation. So the Sierra Club, we really are trying to find a way to be more inclusive, to break down some of the barriers through an appreciation of nature. And we are not shy. We have a, a good, clear eye on the troubled times that we're in. And so we're not shy to have a political fight if one really can't be avoided. Traditionally, environmental conservation may have more so centered around setting aside and protecting certain areas designated as preserved wild spaces. And you say that this is an antiquated idea from a climate perspective. Why is that? And to take this another step further, what has been the larger impact of humans artificially drawing these lines, you know, deciding what's okay to do here, what to do with the adjacent ecosystem there, having these borders for our states and countries and having different fates for ecosystems depending on who they belong to, when in reality all of these lines are entirely human constructs because nature knows none of these borders and boundaries? Sure, sure. Well, I guess I'd say a couple of different things which partly contradict each other. So first, I would say that we do need protected areas. We do need to draw boundaries. We do have to do the work to make sure that the places in our country and around the world that have the highest ecological and social value aren't being plundered for short-term gain or, or to satisfy uh, a person or a company's greed in many cases. And so having laws, having agreements that will put the common interests above private interests is important to do. A couple of thoughts on that. One is that the work to quote unquote protect a particular place really has to be done in conjunction with the local community, the people who are living there perhaps. Maybe it's uh, indigenous people living in intact rainforests in Indonesia or a local community group that traditionally has 
found economic value in a, in a forested area, for example, or in a marine proposed marine protected area, you have to make sure that the, the people who are affected by an effort to protect an area have a voice in the decision-making and have a way to participate in the maintenance and the protection of that area and a way in which they're not, they're not being shut out or certainly even kicked out of, of that area. So I wanted to say that. And the second thing is that it used to be before climate change that once you protected an area, it was protected. As long as the, the law was enforced and mining or logging or oil and gas companies uh, weren't allowed to come in and exploit that area, it would be protected. But what has happened, particularly over the last half century and at a pace that's accelerating, even in protected areas, we're seeing those areas be degraded because of climate change. Species are migrating out of Yosemite Valley to higher latitudes. We're seeing forest ecosystems be impacted pretty dramatically. And so the notion of fully protecting a place is becoming an antiquated idea, even though we need to increase the protection of, of more places around the world. Right. And in pursuit of the level of environmental protection that we really need today, you've previously warned in your book titled Coming Clean, Breaking America's Addiction to Oil and Coal, that even though 60% of Americans believe that we must take action now for climate change, it will only happen by changing corporate America and challenging our political leaders. Perhaps that statement in of itself makes it quite clear, but what does this realization say about our democracy, and why has it been not enough to just get the majority of the people on board? Well, because we have a democracy until we don't. You know, right now in the United States, we have widespread agreement that climate change is real, that it's happening, that our society and our economy would benefit from clean energy, and yet we can't even get a vote on any kind of comprehensive or any kind of significant climate le or clean energy legislation in Congress, in part, in large part, almost solely due to the fact that in the Senate, the party that controls the Senate, the Republican Party, won't allow for that vote to happen. They literally will not schedule a vote. And if they did, the majority of Republican senators wouldn't support it. We wouldn't even get five or 10 of those senators to support strong legislation. The same thing is true when it comes to something simple like background checks or banning assault weapons for civilian use. You have super majorities of Americans that support legislation like that. And yet, because of the way in which rules are written and customs are enforced within the Senate and because of political maneuvering there isn't an opportunity to get votes on those kind of issues. And this is what I was talking about before, about wanting, on the one hand, to be open to people of all persuasions and backgrounds and even political affiliations in addressing our country's challenges. And then on the other hand, being able to identify a, a very big political problem. We have a very big political problem in that we have a Senate that's controlled by fossil fuel supporting senators who are stifling action on the biggest threat to face our country and uh, our species. Now, these political leaders that are really blocking the opportunity for these votes to even take place, 
do you feel like they are truly they're truly reflecting the views of their constituents or is it primarily reflecting the interests of the industries as you mentioned uh, i think it's the latter we clearly we have mitch mcconnell the majority leader of the senate john cornine from texas ted cruz from texas leaders within the senate and the republican party are not reflecting the views of their state. Corey Gardner from the state of Colorado, Mark McSally in Arizona, Tom Tillis in North Carolina. You, we have Republican senators in this case, people who are coming from states where you have measurably, demonstrably, strong support for action on climate change or clean energy, or in the case of Kentucky, simply protecting coal miners' pensions and we can't get action on any of those issues through the Senate right now. So what we're seeing is in the Republican, in the Senate, in the Republican Party, there is no ability to move legislation because of opposition from the fossil fuel industry. Just like in the Senate, there's no ability to move legislation on things like gun safety because of opposition of the National Rifle Association. So you have a few special interests that are thwarting the will of the majority, the supermajority of the American public. So I think the key thing to note here is that people may differ in their political viewpoints or their values, their approaches in terms of what they feel like the government should do. But the, the key thing to note is that our current political decisions being made aren't even reflective of what people actually want because it's skewed in favor of what people in these powerful industries want. Yeah, system is rigged. If you're wealthy, you can put more ads on television. You can't technically buy votes, but you can flood the airwaves and enable your ideas or your favorite elected official to gain more prominence and to have an ability to win elections, or you can defend incumbents for doing what you want them to do. Whereas you or I, people who don't have millions or billions of dollars at our disposal, our voices are easily, often too easily drowned out. And the other piece of that, when you say that we have to change corporate America, what about it specifically do you think has been the primary driver that's furthering our ecological degradation and social injustice? Well, I think corporate America is not a monolith. We have increasingly been seeing more and more companies, big Fortune 500 companies, who are willing to take strong stands on environmental issues. There are dozens of companies now who have made commitments to transition their entire operations to 100% clean energy. We have seen lots of companies take action to green their supply chains. So um, Home Depot uh, was one of the first companies to say that all of the wood that's sold in all of their stores would come from well-managed forests and wouldn't contribute to the degradation or clear-cutting of intact old-growth forests. Companies like Apple or uh, even Starbucks and Walgreens and Ikea, Salesforce, and Google, lots of companies across many different industries are making sure that 100% of the energy that they're using is coming from clean, renewable sources. So that part is, is exciting to me, and it shows how a lot of different parts of our society 
are beginning to use their power for good and not saying that they have to put their profits, particularly their short-term profits, above every other value. And yet, we still have lots of companies uh, who don't act in that way, who not only don't have sustainability embedded within their own programs, but they're putting money into uh, confusing people about climate change, misleading people about climate change, supporting candidates who deny that climate change even exists, and they are actively, consciously, intentionally trying to stop progress from being made. And that's wrong. And um, those companies should be held accountable for their actions, just like elected officials are held accountable. For the companies that are aiming to do things better, I really do want to celebrate that and acknowledge every step that they're taking. But I'm wondering, you know, in the bigger picture, when within our current system, Extraction is almost always more profitable than preservation. And when commodifying nature beyond our necessities can just seemingly endlessly create more human constructed senses of wealth, how do we work with that? Because even for companies that are using wood from sustainably managed trees, they're still going to profit even more until we lead to a point where there's no longer any more sustainably harvested wood if that makes any sense. So it's more like we are doing things in a better way, but how do we draw the line or find the balance of the quantity of stuff that we're consuming and throwing out? Well, I, I guess the way that I approach it and what we approach it at the Sierra Club is that we're trying to affect change at a, a local scale or on a short-term basis and then on a very long-term systemic way, a systemic basis. So what I'm talking about specifically is we will work as hard as we can to prevent fracking in a near Chaco Canyon, for example, or we'll work to protect ancient old growth forests in southeastern Alaska. And those particular efforts, those initiatives are really focused on that one particular place and the, the, the handful of companies that want to degrade those areas and will work through litigation, will organize with local communities, will mobilize people, will advocate at the state or federal level where it's appropriate. And then we simultaneously have to and are putting a lot of resources and time and effort and creative energy into changing the way in which we consume, helping individual consumers to use less, helping to change our, our economic system so that we are using less energy or using fewer products that come from forests, wood and paper, and changing economically how those resources are being valued. And I feel like you have to do both. You know, if, if we only focused on the bigger systemic challenges, those are hard to move. And we would lose a lot of these places in the meantime. But if we only focused on those individual fights, there are too many places that have to be protected. And we'll never build a regenerative, sustainable society that we need if we're not addressing these bigger and deeper questions. Mm. So we try to do both at the same time. So 
Beyond Coal is one of Sierra Club's two primary campaigns, which is uniting grassroots activists across the country to move America beyond coal. I know you've had tremendous success here, helping to retire over half of the nation's coal fleet. What has been key to making that happen in the face of the political challenges that we may be facing? And at the same time, what's holding the rest of the industry back if the economic, social, public health and environmental indicators are so clear that it's long been time to move beyond coal? Okay, so the first part of your question is like, what has happened to get us to this point? I would say hard work and good luck. Um, (laughs) There are lots of organizations, uh, hundreds of organizations who are working locally, nationally, and globally to move beyond coal and to replace every coal plant with 100% clean renewable energy. And people have been working hard, talking with neighbors, organizing scientists, bringing together energy professionals, working through litigation, lobbying, and plant by plant, smokestack by smokestack, have been effective at replacing these dirty plants with clean energy. And we've, we've been fortunate in the sense that clean energy has become much more affordable, uh, it's much more accessible to millions of people, We can replace an outdated grid, electric grid, with something that's more modern, more resilient, and relies on solar and the wind, energy efficiency, and lots of storage. And I guess where we have to go from here is, and the reason why it's not instantaneous, even though we're facing a climate crisis and a biodiversity crisis and lots of political crises, we should be able to move off of coal domestically and globally, we should be able to take care of the workers who have powered our economy for more than 100 years based on coal and make sure that they are locked into a prosperous clean energy transition. We should be able to help the communities whose tax revenues have been based on coal for decades and decades. And we're not in part because the the coal industry is still pretty powerful. Their hold on political leaders is pretty strong, and and we have utilities who are slow and hesitant to really making change at the pace that we need. And mm-hmm. so that's why we continue to work. That's why we continue to advocate and litigate and organize and mobilize to, uh, to make sure plant by plant, utility by utility, state by state, all the remaining coal plants in the U.S., all 233 of them, and all the gas plants in the U.S. are replaced by clean energy as quickly as possible, as quickly and responsibly as possible. As you've mentioned earlier, a key part of climate justice is to support the people whose livelihoods currently depend on the fossil fuel industry in this transition into a green economy. What does that look like in practice in terms of how do we go about ensuring that these workers are not left behind and what sorts of benefits or settlements are necessary to be implemented so that we're not further aggravating injustice in this new and brighter era? Yeah, it starts with just living that value and thinking through carefully, uh, okay, if a particular coal plant in southern Illinois is about to be retired, there are probably 200 people who work there, give or take. What happens to them? Asking and then answering those questions is critical. Uh, And to think through carefully, okay, well, if this plant will be closing in two years, what is the plan to make sure that those workers have a chance at a good livelihood once that plant closes? What other facilities could they work in? What's the bridge between their current job and where they might go? 
where is clean energy growing and is there an opportunity in that community, in that region, to offer training for and job placement and good family sustaining jobs in that area, in, in the clean energy sector. So looking at it on a micro scale with each piece of this transition is important. And then looking at it on a regional and national scale, there are 50,000 coal miners who are working today and several times that who are retired. That is, it's both a, a large number, that's a lot of families, and it's also a manageable number. We are an incredibly wealthy country. We have immense resources. We have a trillion dollar budget, uh, multi-trillion dollar budget. There, there are resources to be shared and there are programs that can be developed that could help this community of miners or the workers in the oil sector or people who are working on oil and gas rigs to make sure that the families have an opportunity to get good and well-paying jobs in the clean energy industry that are going to be growing. Part of that involves advocacy in the clean tech sector to make sure that the jobs that are being created, and there are many of them, are good jobs, high-quality jobs, well-paying jobs. Part of it involves lobbying with state legislatures and uh, federal government to support worker retraining, to protect the pensions of those workers, to uh, assist in funds and economic redevelopment in those areas. And then part of it is the responsibility of the companies in the fossil fuel sector that as they are transitioning to make sure that all of the profits aren't going to the boards and the executive leadership teams of these companies, but that the workers are sharing in the profits and the workers are assisted in transitioning to more sustainable, more sustainable work. Well, Sierra Club really inspires me with it having mobilized over 3.8 million individuals around the country to take some sort of grassroots action. I think there's this idea that making a difference is either about changing our lifestyles or about taking political action. And the first has its limits, especially when people have different circumstances and accessibility. And political action beyond voting can feel daunting for people who've never been walked through this process. Besides these two things, we often leave out the fact that we can also mobilize and act as one part of a powerful collective through grassroots initiatives. What do you see as the key differences in the impact that we can make when we take action in our own lifestyles individually compared to when we join forces and join mobilized efforts for a larger movement? Yeah, you know, I, I try not to discount the actions that people can take individually because that's a way in which we can think about what world do we want to create. So for some people, it's spending $6 on a metal straw and carrying that around with them instead of using plastic straws. And for other people, it's what car do they buy or, or lots of, obviously lots of decisions. So I think that, that that is important. And as you noted, it's not sufficient. And the need for collective action to address the challenges that we face is, is pretty imperative. So what we have found at the Sierra Club through our own experiences and what we've seen throughout our country's history is that when people work together, they are incredibly powerful. And just looking at, looking at it from a climate perspective, well, we started, we started work a couple of years ago to help push and persuade cities to make commitments 
that all of the energy that, that they use within that city will be powered by 100% clean, renewable energy. And it's worked. We have more than 125 cities who have made these commitments. Some of the biggest cities in the country, in the world, Chicago, Denver, New York City, Los Angeles, San Francisco, many others. And all, all of that work was done by individual people working together to push their city council or their mayor or people who want to be mayor, organizing, having meetings, uh, studying up on the issue, thinking through how would a city like Denver make that transition. Just to give an example, we've seen people who work together who have convinced their own companies, people at Amazon. There are thousands of people who work at Amazon who, are, who have said, we want to work for a company that is part of the solution rather than part of the problem. And even though Amazon hasn't gone nearly as far as they need to, it has been the individual action of passionate people who, working together, have persuaded one of the richest, most powerful companies in the world to begin to change their behavior. So whether it's changing the, the cities in which we live or the companies that we work for or the schools where we're studying or the churches and synagogues and mosques where we might worship, we have a, a huge amount of power and an ability to make real and positive, measurable, meaningful changes that go beyond individual lifestyle changes, which are important, and are more rewarding and more immediate than what we might get through voting, which is also critical. It's definitely critical. But there's a lot of other things that can be done than voting and changing what we eat or what we buy. Um, there's a lot of other things that can be done. And to close here, if our listener feels inspired to take part in more grassroots environmental efforts in their local communities, what would you recommend they start with that can have the greatest positive impact? Or how should they get started with this? Well, lots of stuff. You know, so you can join the Sierra Club. Uh, go to our website, sierraclub.org. If you're in the United States, we have a volunteer chapter in every state and local volunteer groups in most major cities in the country. And the way that works is you have, if you're a part of the Sierra Club, you have power. You are the Sierra Club in your neighborhood. So you can advocate using our brand, using our name with resources for a better world in your own backyard. But I would say, you know, more, more broadly beyond the Sierra Club, find a, a local group who makes your heart sing. Uh, find a group that whose values you share, who will find a way for you to contribute. Be patient, because sometimes it takes a little while to find your spot. It likely won't happen immediately. Uh, you'll have to kind of work and maneuver and build a little nest for yourself within an organization. But find someone, some institution, some organization that meets your values and puts your skills and your talents and your passion to use. And if you can't find one, uh, go start your own. Because there's, there's a need for people to, to be involved in to contribute whatever they can. Before we go into our final five, I wanted to let you know that you can now pre-order your 2020 Green Dreamer planners at greendreamer.com slash shop. 
They're made in California, printed on 100% recycled paper using soy-based ink, and they feature our major environmental awareness dates, weekly tips to thrive and check off, as well as ongoing gratitude, goal-setting, and reflection guides to keep you grounded and inspired. I'm really stunned personally by how beautiful they turned out, and the reason I made them again this year was because so many people who got them last year specifically requested that I make them again because it had helped them so much in their lives. And my purpose here is to support you however I can, so I really hope that the planner is another way I'm able to support you throughout your coming year and beyond. Again, you can head to greendreamer.com slash shop to check out our Green Dreamer 2020 planners. For now to our final five, let's power through. What's an uplifting social media account or publication you follow or a book that's been really profound for you? So I would say there's a book that was edited by Paul Hawken called Drawdown. It's a book that talks about how we can actually reverse global warming through a bunch of different things, like restoring our forests and our wetlands, uh, promoting gender equality, things like that. So that, uh, very tangible, very practical, and very inspirational. What do you tell yourself to stay positive and inspired? Well, I, I guess I'm a naturally positive person, and I just try to look for the goodness in everybody that I encounter. Mm. And remember that everybody that I encounter is loved by somebody else. So there's redeeming qualities in all of us, even if it's sometimes hard to find. What's one thing you're working on right now for your health? I'm really focused on what I, how much I sleep and what I eat. What are you working on right now to elevate your positive impact for our planet? Well, I've got this job at the Sierra Club, so that takes a lot of my attention. Um, I guess I'm trying to figure out actually how we restructure, how we help to strengthen the movement, the environmental movement, by being more inclusive, more racially diverse, and um, more welcoming to, to lots of people. And what makes you most hopeful for our planet at the moment? That there are billions of people who care and who really want to make the world a better place and are good at doing it. And um, together, we're unstoppable. Green Dreamer, to learn more and stay updated on Michael's work at Sierra Club, you can head to www.sierraclub.org. And you can also follow him on Twitter and Instagram at Brunsky, that's spelled B-R-U-N-E-S-K-I, or at Sierra Club. I'll have all of this linked in the show notes as well that you can find at greendreamer.com. Michael, thank you so much for your leadership and for sharing your expertise with us. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? Uh, well, first, thanks for having me on, uh, and thank you for all that you're doing. This is an inspirational podcast, and I would say um, don't give up. Don't give up hope. Green Dreamer, thank you so much for tuning in. To support the show, access extended content, and join our Green Dreamer network, you can head to greendreamer.com support for more information. To receive weekly solutions-driven news around ecological regeneration and intersectional sustainability, you can sign up to our free Green Dreamer Weekly Digest at greendreamer.com. And if you'd like to come say hey to let me know that you're tuning in, you can find me on Instagram at greendreamerpodcast and at Shane. Finally, as we're wrapping up here, just remember, now more than ever, our planet needs your light to thrive. So if you haven't yet, hit subscribe and I will catch you later, Green Dreamer.